It's great to see everyone. Great turnout. We had some people show up at 9.15, and I am really, really sorry about that. We were here earlier than 9.15, thankfully. Everybody had a good Christmas? I heard some people have postponed Christmas because of illnesses and families. Anybody know of someone close to you that's sick right now? Yeah, a lot of us. I'd love for us to just take a minute and pray. Can we do that? Um, it's a different kind of service, and I think it'd be good for us to do that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that we can gather here in your name. And Lord, all of us that have raised hands, that we know of someone who's not doing well, whether it's from COVID or stuff they've been struggling on, ongoing disease or even mental um, breakdowns, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would draw near to them. And I wonder right where you are, if you could just say that person's name just ever so soft, softly in your heart. Lord, give all these people to you and ask that you would draw near to them, bring healing, bring comfort. But we want a healthy church so that we can serve you and follow you and communicate your grace to those around us. So we pray a blessing of, of healing now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you all. So this morning, we have a communion service, and it's special and it's different for, for many reasons. And I like to begin by sharing a story, a story that began in a small town called Bethlehem, long before Jesus was laid in that manger. The town of Bethlehem has played a key role in Israel's history for many, many years. Bethlehem is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 35 when we read about Rachel who was buried there. Rachel was Jacob's wife, and Jacob was one of Israel's patriarchs, a father of our faith, and Rachel's name in Hebrew actually means lamb or you. And back then, the names of people and placid, places had incredible meaning, I think more so than our names do today. Later, we read about Bethlehem, again in the book of Ruth, and Bethlehem was also the hometown of Ruth's father-in-law, and this is the same town where Ruth ends up meeting Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. And in this story, this destitute widow falls in love over time with a man from Bethlehem who would later marry her. He ended up protecting and providing for her in incredible ways. See, in ancient times, family members could redeem or buy back individuals who were in slavery. See, Bethlehem is steeped in incredible meaning and a heritage of redemption. As we fast forward through Israel's history, we read that King David was from Bethlehem. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 12 says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. See, David, who would, who would become Israel's anointed king, was the most famous, renowned citizen of Bethlehem. David was a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, who were also residents of Bethlehem. And when Samuel was commissioned by God to appoint David, the successor to Saul, he went 
to Bethlehem. I believe that David watched sheep near Bethlehem. We understand that he was a shepherd boy. He was young. And here's the thing about Bethlehem. It sits approximately five miles from Jerusalem where the people of Israel gathered to worship God and offer their sacrifices every week. In many ways, David put Bethlehem on the map because of his name, yes, but also because of his rule as king. However, after Babylonian captivity, the town of Bethlehem was reduced to a small town, sparsely populated. That's why it's, no, it's incredibly surprising for us to read that 250 years later, we read in Micah that he refers to this little town of Bethlehem. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, it sounds like Sylvester the cat, I'm sorry, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. See, this wasn't some obscure piece of, of information. And it seemed to some extent to be present in people's minds during Jesus' day. Because this is what the book of John says. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can Christ come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that Christ will come from David's family, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. See, Micah is giving us insight into the coming of the Messiah. That his coming would be, wouldn't be loud and flashy and announced everywhere, but instead it would be small, modest, unexpected, even though it had been prophesied and incredibly significant. And here's the thing. Everything in the Old Testament for us as followers of Jesus Christ, when we read scripture, points to the person of Jesus you can look at it from the story of creation to Jacob, to Abraham, to Rachel, the people of Israel leaving Egypt from captivity, Ruth, David, Micah, all point to Jesus. And everything in the New Testament that we read is all about Jesus. The two Testaments together are tied within the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament breaks the silence after hundreds of years in the book of Matthew, and Matthew begins with the lineage of Jesus. When we first read it, we tend to roll our eyes or fall asleep because you're reading of who begot who, but it really speaks to this greater story that has been unfolding from the beginning of time. In the lineage are the patriarchs of Israel, including Jacob, his wife Rachel, Ruth, Boaz, David, and his father Jesse, and many others. Centuries after century, story after story, they're all interwoven together and begin to tell us the story and weave this tapestry of the person of Jesus. But it all seems to culminate in this ordinary little town of Bethlehem. And I wonder, have you ever stopped to wonder why Jesus was really born in Bethlehem? Yes, I know that prophecy said that he would be born there that he would come to this small town. But going beyond that, why was he born in this little town of Bethlehem? See, during Christmas, which was just hours ago, 
we tend to read the story that we find in Luke chapter two. And it says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This verse is jam-packed with meaning for us. It not only talks about the birth of Jesus, but it also talks about and points to his death. See, coming off Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas Day, which was yesterday, I think it's important for us to note the relationship and the tension between Jesus' birth and his death. We do Christ a disservice if we leave him as a manger as just a cute little kid giggling in the hay. It's difficult to talk about Jesus' birth and not talk about his death, and vice versa, because he was born to die. As miraculous as Jesus' birth was, when we read the narrative of a virgin birth and the announcements and the angels and the shepherds, his death would have been an end to a promise. His life had to transcend death. His life had to be more than what it was. But only God could make that possible. And that's why God came in the form of a child, Emmanuel, and made his dwelling among us. Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians saying, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Today we move from cradle to cross. Jesus came into the world with a purpose. His purpose simply wasn't to simply be born. It was so much more than that. Being born would not have saved us. It would not be able to reconcile the world back to the Father. His birth is pivotal in revealing who God is to all of humanity. If you ever want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. See, Jesus coming to earth introduced us to his kingdom and to his rule. Not in just this ethereal, theological kind of way, but also in a personal kind of level. Jesus' life here fulfilled the law. Jesus showed us how to live a life without sin, pleasing to God. Jesus coming to earth unwrapped God's love, peace, hope, and freedom, and healing to this world. The things that we long for are embodied in Jesus. Jesus pointed us to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit available to us all. The Spirit of the Lord, Scripture says, was upon Jesus and anointed him. And this is what he did while he was here. He proclaimed the good news to the poor. He proclaimed liberty to the captives and recovered sight to the blind and gave liberty to the oppressed and proclaimed the year of the Lord. See, Jesus did all these things and much, much more. And yet, all those things in of themselves could not save us. They could not bring about the healing that the world and that you and I crave within our souls. Jesus' birth was a gift. And we've talked about, for unto us a child is born. But it was a gift of a different nature. And yes, it was God made man. It was God stepping out of darkness into in, out of light and into our darkness as the light of the world. 
But God still had to conquer sin and death once and for all. Not only would Jesus deal with sin, but he himself would become sin for the benefit of the world. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that he might become the righteousness of God. See, out of holy love, Jesus becomes one of us. And it was out of that love that he gives his life for us. He came for the lost, for the brokenhearted, for the sick, for the destitute, for those in darkness, for those of us separated from God. He came to die so that you and I could have life. Jesus came to this world to save sinners. We read in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I can't help to think of the song, Mary, Did You Know? When Mary and Joseph held Jesus, did they know who they were really holding? When they cuddled up with Jesus, did they think about Jacob and Ruth and David and all those who had gone before him? When they played with Jesus' cute little feet and hands, did they know that one day they'd be nailed to a tree? And when they kissed Jesus on the forehead, did they know that one day a crown of thorns would be forced upon it? And when they tickled his ribs and played with him, did they know that one day his side would be pierced? I wonder, did they know the meaning of Bethlehem? For centuries, wheat and barley have grown on Bethlehem's east side. Bethlehem was known for its fertile soil. Usually, grain and the feeding of animals go hand in hand. And sure enough, commentator writes on Bethlehem's northwest side, there were sheep to go alongside the wheat. And depending on the language that you speak, the name Bethlehem can mean something slightly different. Bethlehem is derived from two words that have been put together. The first part of the word is Beth, which means house of, either in Hebrew or Arabic. It means house of. The second part of the word, lahem, in Hebrew means bread. In Arabic, it means meat. And remember, the names of people and places back then held a deeper and greater meaning, meaning than I think most of our names do today. Jesus was born unto us for a purpose, something so much greater than you and I will ever understand. See, the name of the place where Jesus was born spoke and pointed to this greater purpose. So it's no coincidence that Jesus, born in this small town, almost forgotten town of Bethlehem, was the house of meat and also the house of bread. What seems to be less known to us is the kind of sheep that were cared for in Bethlehem by its shepherds. They were a special kind of sheep because it was known as the house of meat. They raised the sheep that would be used in the sacrifices at the temple. That's why it's no surprise to us, and I think to many, when Jesus is referred to by his cousin John the Baptist when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus brought together the east and west sides 
the hills of Bethlehem when he declared that his bread is his flesh. Something would have connected the minds of the hearers in that day. I think something that all of us would have missed. See, Bethlehem's shepherds were not just any shepherds just tending to any old sheep. They were descendants from David. And here's the thing. The word Beth, house of, can also be translated as temple instead of just house. And remember, Jerusalem was only a few miles from these hills of Bethlehem. See, in a sense, the shepherds were contract workers with, for the temple because Jerusalem was the center of religious activity in Judaism. And during Jesus' time, there was this massive slaughtering of animals going on. According to the Torah, we read this in Exodus, that they had to sacrifice Two lambs every day were required at the temple. That's 730 lambs. That's a lot of sheep, y'all. Each year, twice daily, offering a male lamb. It's kind of this continuous offering given to God. It was the first and last offering of each day. But here's something else that speaks to the nature of Christ's arrival. Thousands of lambs were needed by Jewish families during this time of Passover and other, other rituals that went on, but predominantly during Passover, remembering their deliverance from Egypt as they went into the wilderness before going into the promised land. And one of the most widely observed of Jewish holidays, Passover, required a lamb to be sacrificed for every household, for all those who could afford it. All the lambs were ritually killed at the same time in the same place. But before they were slaughtered, each lamb would be required to, in a sense, become a pet in the family. So after the day of the, of the final Sabbath before Passover, I believe it's our Palm Sunday, shepherds from the hills of Bethlehem would come into town and drive thousands of lambs into Jerusalem. Families would purchase them, and they would take them in to their families as pets. And then when the time for the sacrifice would come, maybe two to four days later, the Jewish priest would come in front of the family and stand and would ask the question, do you love this lamb? If the family says, no, we don't like this lamb, it pees and poops on our carpet all the time, then there would be no sacrifice. But if the family said, we absolutely love this lamb, and the sacrifice would proceed. Many of us would remember Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? In that simple question, Jesus was affirming his identity as the sacrificial lamb of God. See, responding to Jesus' love allows us to receive the sacrificial gift given to us, redemption from sin, Wholeness with the Father and the ability to live a resurrected life on this side of eternity. Bethlehem lambs were born for slaughter, and those were special lambs. See, as soon as a lamb was born, in order to prevent the lamb from hurting itself, newborn lambs were picked up by the shepherds, and they were wrapped in swaddling cloths. And they were laid in feeding troughs in a manger 
to protect them. They were elevated to keep them safe from others, from themselves. But they made this possible only to those lambs that were without blemish, those that were perfect. So when the shepherds gathered around this feeding trough and they saw a lamb wrapped in swaddling cloths, the only thing that was different was the kind of lamb that was there. They probably said to themselves, we've never seen a lamb that looks like that. For they, behold, they were viewing, they were admiring and praising the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. The perfect lamb of God. So all of a sudden, the story, Mary had a little lamb, seems to make a little bit more sense now. Everything about Jesus' birth foreshadowed the purpose of Jesus coming into this world. And just like that, Jesus was born as the Lamb of God and the bread of life. The perfect Lamb of God would one day, who would be led to the slaughterhouse, would not only perform the ultimate sacrifice, but would become that ultimate sacrifice for us. One final sacrifice for all of humanity. And in the same manner, the grain of wheat would be buried. See, wheat is the grain, the seed of bread. And he says that this wheat, this kernel of wheat must be buried. Jesus understood that so that all of us could have everlasting life. Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet write, The house of meat, the temple rituals of sacrifice and slaughter were transformed into the house of bread. Jesus, the one who was born in Bethlehem, in old Hebrew, the house of bread, and declared that the sacrifice of meat would no longer be the gateway to God's salvation and God's presence. Bread would become his body, his flesh. Meat and God's presence would now be found around tables as much as at temples. In shutting down the slaughterhouse, Jesus moves us from the temple from that house to the table. Who knew that in that small town, in a small child, through a small seed of bread, a small lamb would have such impact on the trajectory of human history and on our lives today. Max Lucado says, the omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who, had no, he who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. See, God had a plan all along to seek and save the lost, to come for us who were far away from him. See, the story of Bethlehem is part of a much greater story it's a story that is part of our story. It's a story of love and life that deals with sin, death, suffering, and injustice and despair of all kinds. In Bethlehem, the house of meat, a lamb was born, the lamb of God. In Bethlehem, the house of bread, Jesus was laid in a feeding trough, a place where animals ate, but now the entire world invited to come and eat to feast of him as the bread of life. See, in Bethlehem, a king 
was born, a king after God's own heart, much greater than David's heart. In a little town of Bethlehem, God chose to enter this world. Bethlehem, Rachel, Ruth, David, Mary, others. Perhaps ordinary, but significant in the role they play in God's story. May we not miss the big truth in the small things around us in our everyday lives. And I think it's important for us to move from Bethlehem's cradle to Calvary's cross because Jesus was born to die so that you and I could have life everlasting. The stable moves us and points us to the stable. It moves us too to the table of the Lord. And here's the thing. The table is open to all. It's not, this table in front of us is not just for a few. It's not only for those who think they're perfect and righteous and have it all together. It's for those of us who have been in despair or in need of healing, in need of redemption, in need of light. The table has been laid out for us. This isn't a United Methodist table. This isn't Foundry's table. For all are invited. All who are humble, repent, and desire to live at peace with God, with themselves, and with others. And I want us to bow our heads for just a minute and create a space in your heart, in your mind right now to confess to God. To say, Lord, we've not lived life with your focus, with your priority in mind. Even you at home right now can take a minute to do this. And say, God, thank you for making it right. Thank you for making a bridge between us and you, for becoming one of us, for taking care of my sin, for saving me from myself, from sin and death. Thank him now.